0: Welcome to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. I've known Ian Gill for a number of years. From the time I was working uh, in the green space, running my green ad agency, Ian was running an organization called EcoTrust, an organization he ran actually in three different countries. Uh, Ian is uh, more than just someone who runs companies in the green space, though. For a long time, for years, he was a reporter and editor at the Vancouver Sun. He's also uh, an award-winning documentarian with our uh, national news agency, the CBC. And he has now just written a book called No News is Bad News. A great book. Loved it. He's a fantastic storyteller, and it's a fun, fun read. It documents the disintegration of what we call our legacy media in Canada, that is the newspapers and magazines and TV news that we grew up with, and ask the question, what's going to replace them? Now, it's a great story just in and of itself. However, I find as we're living in this sort of brave or at least highly fluctuating world of media today, it would be very, very relevant in a didn't-see-it-coming context to bring Ian aboard and talk about what is coming for the media and how should we respond. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Great to be here, Mark.
0: Awesome to have you. Uh, No news is bad news. I'm going to lay it out for folks. We have a a group of magazines and newspapers in Canada, national magazines, newspapers like The Globe and Mail, National Post, Maclean's Magazine, CBC. They were our go-to sources for news. These legacy media Are dying. Why? Uh,
1: Well um, you could just say Google and Facebook ate their lunch Mm. uh, which would be true um, and they sure as heck didn't see that coming. Uh, We've seen the absolute erosion of uh, the traditional way of funding journalism which was advertising uh, and a huge shift uh, away from legacy media to digital media, and in particular social media, like Google and Facebook. And so, um, where the industry used to, the newspaper industry used to pull in eight or nine hundred million dollars a year in classified advertising. You know, that's down to about one hundred and twenty million dollars a year. Uh, where they used to produce something like two billion dollars in display advertising revenues, that's gone down to half that. Um, Over the last few years uh, the industry has lost 40% of its revenues from advertising just across the bat. So that sort of tends to jigger with your business model Mm -hmm. um, as you might imagine. Um, And so firstly, there's just been a complete disruption to the economic model for journalism um, and you, you could say that's a bad thing, and in some ways it has been, especially if you're sitting on an old legacy newspaper and all the uh, costs associated with a very uh, labor-intensive and um, uh, expensive business, uh, and you don't have any way to pay for that, obviously things are going to shake out. The other big thing, of course, is that people are uh, finding ways to get news and information in very different ways than they traditionally did. Uh, and that has actually opened up the channels of media in ways that nobody anticipated, and which in, in many ways are unbelievably alarming. you know, uh, for instance, looks what's like happening south of the border. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know there's been a couple of things going on, one of which is just the business model has collapsed. The other thing is that the business model didn't collapse just because they weren't producing. Um, uh, reasonably decent newspapers, is because something else came along to take their place.
0: Now, what I found interesting was you talk a lot about philanthropy as being a funding model, and you say that there are several you know news sources that that are looking to philanthropy, and in, in the past, philanthropy has played a role in in supporting the media. But that was that came as a surprise to me. I thought that the, the media were always funded by advertising dollars. Explain, is there is there a future with philanthropy funding the media?
1: Well, if that's the future, it'll be a small and very diminished one because uh, the philanthropic assets of uh, foundations and uh, high net worth individuals in Canada who are prepared to put money into philanthropy are infinitesimally small by comparison of what's available in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, so I think it's a piece of the puzzle.' Um, you know, at the moment we don't have tax laws and uh, um, philanthropy you know, charities laws in Canada. Uh, inimical to the funding of uh, journalism, in part because we've always considered in Canada journalism to be a quasi-political activity, Mm -hmm. and our charities law doesn't allow uh, the expenditure on much political activity. I think that's going to change. I've written papers about the fact that it should change, uh, and there's a lobby on... Uh, currently in uh, Ottawa, to try and uh, have foundations freed up. So the Knight Foundation in the U.S., for instance, the mm-hmm. Neiman Foundation, uh, the Pew Charitable Trust, there are these uh, large foundations that put uh, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars into public interest journalism. Um, and if you think about that um, that phrase, public interest journalism, um foundations should be free to fund activity that that takes place in the public interest. Um, And so NPR and uh, ProPublica and uh, really high-quality outfits like that in the U.S. are mostly funded by philanthropy. In Canada, we don't have the ability to do that. If we had the ability to do it, what I'm worried about is that we wouldn't have enough money to make much of a dent because also philanthropy at the moment pays for a lot of other Mm -hmm important uh, public um, goods in this country. So if journalism is suddenly at the table, maybe something else has to fall off. But So there's a possibility we can fund some good journalism through uh, philanthropy and I hope we do and will. But I think that philanthropy's ability to respond to this crisis is modest and I think the crisis is urgent and it's large and it's real. And philanthropy can be part of the solution, but only a small part of it.
0: Now, I want to shift gears. Just this morning, I saw a great uh, cartoon that's uh, sort of gone viral um, uh, online, and uh, two people walking down the street, and one person says the next, my uh, desire to stay informed has come in, has lately uh, been at odds with my desire to stay sane. We are absorbing news and every day it it freaks us out more and more and a lot of people are advocating shut down your news feed and read a daily newspaper because by the time it hits the daily news in print in paper uh, we've had a little bit of time to digest and add perspective and to me that seems to be the role of journalism yes to break news but not at a knee-jerk pace to also take the time and and put it in context. Do you see news media playing a valuable role as analysts and sitting back and going, let's put this in context? Or do you see news media chasing down uh, this path of, we have to release, you know, Donald Trump's dog uh, has indigestion. It has to be released immediately. Because I just see that as a long-term path to destruction and irrelevance.
1: Well, that's actually partly what got us in this pickle in the industry in the first place. Content now is everywhere. It is immediate and it is essentially free. Um, I mean, somebody has to pay for the camera to be there and everything else. But as soon as a, a shot is taken or something's recorded or written down... Um, it's viral, it's free and everything else. So mm-hmm. there's always a role for journalism to be first to the scene if we can be, although mostly these days people are at the scene, you know, film mm-hmm. themselves being shot by the police and mm-hmm. put that up before journalists could ever get there. Um, but one of the problems is that there's this confusion between being first and being right. Mm-hmm. Um, and being sober and being reflective and uh, producing just the sort of analysis you're talking about. And so um, you, I think we're always going to have sort of instant news and flashy headlines and everything else. Um, we've got instruments now. Most of them have one of them in our pocket, which enable us to be uh, informed in the most superficial way and, um, more quickly than you could ever have imagined. So no one saw that coming at all, Uh, and so that's fine. The problem is that um, it's very hard to pay for the longer-term, more thoughtful, more analytical journalism, which is actually the real job of journalists. I don't think, um, you know, I was criticized when I was an editor because I was always less worried about getting scoops you know being the first to a traffic accident mm-hmm. i was more interested in why why do they keep having accidents at that corner mm-hmm. um, like let's talk about that uh and what are the systemic things happening in our society that require reflection and investigation and everything else that is to me the job of journalism um uh, the company that i'm now running discourse media um we uh, that's entirely what we're focused on. We don't care if somebody gets a story a month before us. We're much more interested in actually figuring out what the real story is. Um, how can we bring a kind of systems approach to thinking about uh, the kind of impact that we're having as journalists and the kind of long-term um, impact we can have with a story, uh, including you know changing public policy, uh, influencing people, by um, helping people understand at a deep level uh, what's wrong with the system that we live within and actually, to some degree, what's right with it, too. So one of the other things we're doing is what we call solutions journalism. Journalism shouldn't be just about what's gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, The power of storytelling and good storytelling and the audience that we have as storytellers, as journalists, we should also use that for the public good. Yes, there's a crisis in education. Here's the crisis and what's wrong with it. Um, You know what? We found a jurisdiction just south of the border in Seattle, for instance, or across in Texas uh, or wherever, where they figured out this problem of bullying in schools or whatever else. Let's Mm -hmm. write stories about what works as well. And frankly, part of the erosion of the public trust in media is because the public feel, to go back to your point, they feel traumatized by the media they get. And that enduring sort of trauma and the repeat of that trauma, people are turning off. People don't want to have their noses rubbed in the fact that things are crazy all the time. Uh, They want to know enough about that to know how to be safe and to make good choices in their lives. But what they really want people to help them understand is, okay, these are complex times. How do I navigate these times as an individual, as a citizen, as a participant in our democracy, what are my responsibilities or how do I just get through the day without constantly being terrified? And the media have done a terrible job of of um, helping people make sense of a very complex and frankly frightening world.
0: Now, in your book, you talk about uh, the media solution. A lot of the, 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 the barons, the media barons in Canada are solving the problem by conglomerating and aggregating with the effect that, a lot of small towns no longer even have their own newspaper and and the bigs are are pulling themselves together and buying, buying, buying. But you know, normally you'd look at this and go, well, that, that means they're you know, they've got a lot of money to spend. But even the media barons are doing this on a shoulder of huge debt. So you go, what's what they're leading towards? is one monumental collapse. One day we wake up and suddenly the globe and the post and, uh, you know, and, and, and the, the star, they'll just be gone. Do you see that happening where they're just the walking dead? Or do you think that um, people's uh, sensibility that they're going to go, I can't take this instantaneous news anymore. I need reflection. Do you think that somehow it's going to swing back and, and people are going to go back to, you know, the mainstream media?
1: Well, it will swing back over time, but we haven't seen bottom yet. So we've got a long way. We're actually not that far to go before post-media, for instance, just um, does collapse on the sea of its own contradictions. You know, this is a company that is so dramatically gutted the reporting power and the analytical power the basic sort of um, ingredients for the product they produce um, you know, in january they laid uh, uh, another 24 or so people in the vancouver sun and province uh, took the buyout um, the week before uh, uh, they laid off people in hamilton and uh, windsor and ottawa um, and so you know, post media has shared more than three thousand jobs over the last few years uh, constantly cutting costs, selling off real estate, basically absolutely gutting those products um, to pay off hedge fund debt. And that came about because this country has been lazy and politically stupid about allowing a very, very heavy concentration of media ownership. This is a story that goes back 30 or 40 years mm-hmm. to the Davy Commission, to the Kent Commission. Everybody warned don't let these conglomerations end up owning all these newspapers. Well, we just made it worse and now we're paying for it. Um, Mm. And so what's going to happen is that a lot more of these papers are going to fail. um, And then the star is in very dire shape. Uh, The Globe and Mail is putting lipstick on a pig, frankly. Uh, They're barely sort of um, readable anymore. And if not for the money they get from the oil industry, I'm not sure they'd even survive. So, Um, This is a real shakeout. There's a real bloodbath that is happening right in front of our faces right now. You don't hear much about this in Canadian media because we don't have a media culture that is self-critical. And so a lot of these papers papers are going to die. Um, Axel Springer in in Germany, the largest publisher in uh, Europe, uh, the CEO there said uh, a year or so ago that within 10 years, newspapers are going to be like vinyl records. Uh, They're going to be a collector's item. Well, vinyl records have made a comeback, as you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so so newspapers will make a comeback too, when they've pretty much been wiped off the face of the earth. There will be hopefully um, uh, some local investors in different cities who decide they still want a newspaper, and if we got back to having the um, local ownership uh, of a Newspaper in a city like Vancouver, for instance, which bills itself as an internationally you know, important city now. Um, certainly, we have internationally important real estate prices, mm-hmm. um, so you'd think we're a global city. You know, our newspapers are an abject embarrassment. I mean, if you have a sophisticated guest come to Vancouver and they're staying at a hotel. And they'll look at you the next day when you go and meet them for breakfast, having read our morning newspapers. <laughs> so is there any journalism happening in this city? Uh, yeah, I know. I, I mean,
0: remember I remember the, the province. You know, you look at the province on the front page, it's always a uh, gang member killed. And on the back page, it's hockey scores. And that, yeah. that kind of defined the paper.
1: Well, pretty much. And so we need to get over that and we need to get over that soon. So, um, you know, recently, the Public Policy Forum did a big analysis on the news media in Canada, uh, and you know they painted as dire, perhaps updated my book to some degree, an even more dire um, picture of legacy media in Canada. One of the problems – and they're proposing a number of solutions which have to do with tax law reform and uh, perhaps creating a fund – Uh, to promote um, the blossoming of digital media like discourse media, where I am right now, uh, we'd obviously welcome that because it's a tough market to be starting up a a media company, I have to tell you that. But um, uh, what we're actually seeing as well is these legacy media cap in hand up in Ottawa begging the government to advertise more in current newspapers and do more and give them more tax incentives and enable them to keep going on. And frankly, I think the government should mightily resist any temptation to give legacy media another red cent. I think they've lost their social license to operate. I think they've lost their social license to be supposedly acting in the public interest because they don't. And the sooner they go away, the better. What that does mean is um, digital media, new digital media really have to dial it in and really have to figure out how to pay for or how to get Canadians to pay for good quality digital media uh, because that's where the future is and frankly it's a it's an amazingly interesting future. You can do as an old newspaper man, I'm sitting there now a discourse where we're putting these digital packages together. And in addition to having a written text, we have uh, text on video and we have short video clips and we have audio and we have uh, like a variety of different platforms all feeding in, all of which are – and you know, beautiful uh, imagery and photography and data visualization and everything else. All of these are ways of storytelling, which make the story so much more compelling and desirable to read um, and understandable – than just sort of printing a whole bunch of you know, uh, gray type on a newspaper. So mm. these are exciting formats that we have to play with now. We never had that kind of creative range in the newspaper industry, um, and they don't have that creative range, frankly, in the television industry either. So this is not all bad, but um, you know, we do have to find a way um, to help Canadians understand that if they want to live in a healthy democracy – and if they want, as part of a function of that, someone to help curate real analysis and understanding rather than just clickbait, uh, then you know, someone needs to pay for that. This is expensive to produce, um, and it's important to produce, and uh, we need to find a way to have people pay for that and feel good about paying for it. We need to deliver, uh, but they need to receive.
0: Let's take a quick break and then come right back with Ian Gill of Discourse Media. If you're fascinated by these didn't-see-it-coming moments where companies or institutions get sideswiped by history, you might want to check out my book, Didn't See It Coming. You'll find it at Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, Amazon.everything. And you can also find it on my website, markstoiber.com. If you like it, please leave a review. Thanks a lot. So we just painted a pretty bleak picture uh, about where legacy media is going. And, you know, from your book, I see that this isn't just a Canadian thing. This is happening all around the world. At the same time, you talked about uh, it being a brave new world and, and exciting things happening. Now, um, we just had, you know, with the U.S. election and, and the, the rise of fake news. Um, I guess they're called alternative facts now. Uh, the rise of fake news we looked behind the the curtain here, and what we saw was a whole bunch of people who had crafted a style of writing that could get maximum clicks which would bot bring in maximum ad dollars so uh, what I found really disheartening was this this whole new type of uh, you know bunny ear quote uh, media that are just focused on getting people to click and the sort of stuff people are going to click is garbage sensationalist garbage you know the sort of weekly world news national inquirer stuff uh but you're saying there is a brave new world good things are happening so encourage me tell me about some of the good things that are happening
1: well there's a variety of things happening one of the things i write about in my book is uh Um, A product I admire a great deal in Holland called De Correspondent um, which is The Correspondent in English. Um, I I hope your listeners appreciate my facility with language there. Um, uh, (laughs) And uh, De Correspondent, um, their idea, uh, this is a crowdfunded site, they don't have advertisers, they don't have large investors, they have uh, one group of uh, they have an audience which is their only They're only responsibilities to their audience. They're not trying to satisfy a hedge fund in terms of debt. They're not trying to satisfy an investor in terms of return. Um, They're not trying to satisfy uh, advertisers and do a bunch of slick stuff that just um, happens to fall within the bandwidth of the demographic the advertiser is looking for. They're doing serious, systemic, uh, important journalism. Um, They also create places where people can participate in journalism, be engaged with it, and actually they create and curate a kind of public square of discussion and analysis. Um, And uh, it's not full of trolls. It's actually full of serious people having serious conversations. They did that by crowdfunding, um, and what they basically said is, uh, these are a couple of quite prominent um, journalists with legacy papers in Holland who just said, we're sick of producing this crap. Um, we want to actually produce something of value. It's all digital. It's all online. Um, and they basically said, trust us to build a new media product. Um, and give us 60 euros uh, a year. And that's what we'll do. And that's what they've done. Um, and Part of their journalism is they sort of say, it's kind of a cute notion, but it's true. They say, We're not interested in what happened today, we're interested in what happens every day. To Mm -hmm. to go back to what I was talking about earlier, you know, uh, to be superficial about it, but, you know, they're not interested in the car crash, they're interested in the reason the car crashes happen over and over again on that bridge or whatever. But they do. They're not just interested in car crashes. They're talking about actual you know, serious policy issues but around insight, health. Insight as insight, opposed to insight. Just,
0: just, uh, just a Facebook or a Twitter instant reporting of something with no insight or analysis at all, which just terrifies us. You know, it just right. leaves us reeling and going, I feel like a lab rat that's been shocked too many times. All I do is wander around and press things and get shocked, you know?
1: Well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and and then the other thing they do that I think is really important is as part of their trust building and engagement, sort of thirty to fifty percent of their reporters' time is uh, spent engaging with the readers, and then they do quite a lot of events and other things, and and so they, you know, they actually curate important conversations on an ongoing basis, and they don't just pump something out and then ignore the readers, and then the readers are invited to participate in helping. Um, to contribute new knowledge. And so this, this kind of virtuous circle has occurred there, which I just love, and we're in conversations with them. And um, I'll see them again in Italy in April at the International Journalism Festival, where I first met them a couple of years ago. So so they're an example. Holland is not Canada. It's not an easily translatable model. But there are examples around the world. There's um, you know, some really interesting things that the New York Times is doing that the Guardian is doing that other Digital uh, products, uh, sorry, legacy products are Mm -hmm. doing now in the digital realm to try and stay relevant. Um, I mentioned, I think, ProPublica, which is a terrific investigative uh, news outfit. Um, uh, There's a number of very serious and very interesting um, uh, startups and actually now fairly well established uh, new media products around the world. So it doesn't all have to be... um, Donald Trump said this and we all need to run and duck and cover Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are ways and there are emerging models where we will see um, you know sort of an an uptick frankly uh, Mm -hmm. on how we go about doing journalism but but the other thing is Canada has been woefully behind everybody else just from a technology standpoint in terms of adjusting and you know, again these these Companies like PostMedia and The Globe and The Star and others, these big companies, I mean, they really didn't see it coming from a technology Mm -hmm. point of view. They sort of, when the web came along, they kind of basically took their front pages and put them on the Internet Mm -hmm. and thought, thought that that was all they had to do. They totally do not understand, you know, from a kind of digital native point of view. What it means to show up digitally, and they still don't. The 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 star experimented with this disastrous uh, tablet. Um, yeah, that, that's star the one tablet. thing I,
0: I thought that was really funny because that basically what they're saying is we'll take paper, we'll scrunch it all up, and we'll stick it on this thing called a tablet. Uh, you're just, and then it completely misses the point. The whole idea that that you know online means instant, online means interactive. Uh, and what they did was just jump to a shiny thing it 's right. like it seems like these fits and starts and these knee jerk reactions uh, in 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 reaction to you know steadily declining readership but they 're totally missing the point, which for the majority of us, you go well okay we didn 't see it coming, but you 'd think journalism of all institutions are in the business of looking at. The world and going ah here's how it's going to go, but they completely missed it. Maybe it's because they're inside the jar. They're too much inside their own jar. They can't see the future. They can't see the world around them.
1: Well, it's very true. You you would think, although I've been a journalist long enough to watch journalism cover things in plain sight and then not ever adjust from a business point of view you know, through various uh, phases of this. And in the stars' case, the happened. You know, what they totally missed the point and is that people don't get their news on tablets they get it on their phone now you know yeah. and so um and so one of the interesting things another holland product this product called Blendle, which is going to be called the itunes for news they've decided that people don't want to buy an entire newspaper quite often um you know just because you buy the new york times and you get 350 pieces of new content a day not everybody wants to read about gardening or arts and science or whatever else. You know, they want to read sports or they want to read this and they throw most of the paper away. Well, that's a ridiculously wasteful thing. Mm-hmm. So Blend- Blendle has a way of um, being able to paper make m- right? m- micropayments and you pay for yeah. story. The point of that being that almost all of their readership is on phones. Um, also, people are reading 3,000 word articles. They're actually interested in real analysis. They're not are just interested in clickbait, if you give them good content where they're looking for it, which increasingly is on their mobile. Um, and the other interesting thing coming out of Holland, and maybe there's something in the water there, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, or something in the beer. or uh, But... Um, uh, millennials, who most of people just write off as being you know airheads who are driving the clickbait revolution, actually millennials are uh, really interested in and paying for uh, news that doesn't insult their intelligence, um, and they're prepared to read long-form journalism. So that's a bright spot. I mean, it's not like the world is getting any less complex <laughs> uh, mm. by any means, Um and thinking people still do look to journalism to help them make sense of an increasingly complex world. So that in in that idea right there, there is the glimmer of hope, I think, because I don't see in any of this, um, uh, I don't get any sense at all that people are less curious about their world necessarily or that there is less demand for public interest journalism, and I emphasize public interest again to distinguish it from all the rest of the crap that's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So Canada, as I say, has sort of missed the band on um, the technological revolution. We didn't lead anything about that with the exception of maybe BlackBerry, but in the journalism terms, we we haven't been a leader in the adaptation to new technologies that favor storytelling. What we can do possibly in this country that... um, you know, we've, we've been a bit behind on that revolution, but what we could do is be um, very attentive to changes in journalistic practice and begin to think about um, how could can Canada actually help the world shape a new form of journalism, which is not traumatizing to people, but actually empathetic to what is happening in the world or what people's needs are. How can journalism provide um, a public service as opposed to just pumping out whatever happens to get people's attention, a public service by doing the in-depth analysis that the country needs and that, frankly, our democracy needs. Um, There are all sorts of reports that show that the participation in public life and in civic life uh, is very – there's a sort of one-to-one relationship between that and the amount of good journalism and good media there are. So as our journalists are laid off ad nauseum and ad infinitum, um, as our media sphere tightens and becomes uh, really separated into camps um, and that we lose the uh, civic space for public discourse, as that happens, our participation in public life declines and then our democracy is absolutely under threat, in part because people are paying less attention. Mm -hmm. And if we have fewer journalists, our governments and our businesses and people who are in charge of the sort of public trust are pretty much operating in the dark and they can get away with whatever the hell they want. So we need to kind of rebuild that core and I think we can do it in a different way. Um, I don't think, especially if we can figure out a way to pay for this, um, I don't think we need to feed clickbait, I don't think we need to pander to advertisers, and I don't think we need to be prostrate in the front of greedy investors. I think we can design a system of journalism which is attentive, empathetic, um, that is is uh, um, prepared to stay with stories for a long time, to be investigative, to be you know, systemic in its approach, um, thoughtful about impact, Um, Still creative, still good storytelling. And there are tools now that enable that. And frankly, also, I think journalism will succeed and rebuild public trust if we can find a way to engage with people uh, where they are uh, in a way that is positive and reinforcing and not just engage with them at the level of where their fears are but engage with them at the level of where their hopes and aspirations and their potential and their desire for new possibilities. Okay. If we can be the avatars of that, I think that will perform a public service, which is what people should demand of their journalists.
0: Now, let me let me just paint a picture here for you. Um, uh, you know, the more I read, the more I, I see in the U.S. Because I think in the U.S. we'd probably hear a lot of the same complaints. I see the the mainstream news, you know, looking at the Foxes and the CNNs, swinging to the right, swinging to the left, and losing so much credibility because they're being they're being painted as basically mouthpieces for a party or an ideology. I see echo chambers uh, where people are going through their lives without ever confronting anyone who has a rational, sensible point of view that might be different from their own, and that's the magic of algorithms. But I also see maybe there's an area for hope, and you paint this picture um, in in No News is Bad News, that as things swing to more and more radical fringes, one, we could either watch media just implode and, and from the smoking ruins going, my God, we never saw this coming because... Uh, You know, we never even we never bothered to look at somebody else's point of view or the more positive picture as the, the media of today swings wildly to the right and to the left. There's this huge gaping hole in the sensible middle. That you know, if we look to Holland, if we look to the UK, if we look to what you just painted the picture of, uh, you know, millennials who are looking to long-form journalism, but and who will digest uh, a good analysis as opposed to knee-jerk sort of reaction journalism. Maybe there's this huge gap in the middle. The the established media, like dinosaurs, are going to die, and up the middle comes an entirely new way. Of uh, absorbing ideas, but also getting long-form, sensible, rational perspective. Do you see that happening, or do you just see the the entire North American media landscape just melting down?
1: Well, I see what you described happening because that's what uh, that's the space that discourse uh, media and others. That we're not alone here. Are actually trying to fill, and we're sort of you know how. Our projections and our business model is based on the fact that um, uh, there will be a demand in exactly that space that you're talking about. Uh, We have no desire to feed either ideology or political uh, parties' um, points of view or any of that. Uh, That's happening out on the margins, as you say, uh, and it's crept in and sort of taken a bunch of people out to those margins. Um, But we don't see our future in that we see it actually in um having some confidence that there are people there who want ways to cut through the noise um and get out of these echo chambers or these silos or these filter bubbles um as they're sometimes called Mm um you know the fact is that uh if you want to read Breitbart news, for instance, um, then you can you can have all your biases and all your ideological kind of um, leanings satisfied there. And you will never read anything on there that uh, challenges your point of view or that ideology. Um, and so you can just wall in that forever, and that's your world. And that's what we've seen happening. And terrifyingly, Breitbart are opening up in France and Germany right now because they feel they got Trump elected, and they feel they can get. Um, anti-immigrant, nativist you know, politicians mm-hmm. uh, in Germany and France, and there's plenty of them. They feel like you know, their business model is going to carry over into that. Um, so you can you can get all that stuff if you go looking for it, or it'll just find you if you show the slightest inclination to be susceptible to that. Um, we need to find a space where it's okay uh, to actually, uh, and, and we can curate spaces where people feel that, their curiosity about a different point of view that's outside their ideological bandwidth can be satisfied by actually having a conversation with somebody they feel um, at odds with philosophically or politically or religiously or whatever. Um, you know, there is no time in history in the world in which, uh, that I can point to, where um, belligerents have. Uh, succeeded in uh, selling their ideology uh, in any way other than being more belligerent than the other person. and mm-hmm. so if uh, and so the only way that um, you can change people's minds other than killing them you know, mm-hmm. uh, is by having uh, uncomfortable discussions with people whose ideas you don't share or whose beliefs you don't share. Part of journalism's job is to facilitate those conversations and they will happen in that central space, as you were describing, rather than in these margins where people are already out on the margins because they simply do not believe or are not prepared to listen to somebody who might have a different viewpoint than them. And that's what we've lost in our publics, where we've lost the places um, Physical places, in some cases, and uh, intellectual spaces, frankly, mm. where people are prepared to um, realize that the strength of our community is in the multiple differences, mm. not in some uniformity. And we and, and Canada could be a world leader in figuring this out. We're not going to be the leaders in the technological revolution, we could be leaders in the media cultural revolution, and in the end. The world's problems are not going to be solved by engineers, um, much as people down at Google Labs might think that's right. the case. Um, the world's problems and, and the world's possibilities, frankly, can't all be characterized as problems. The great hope and possibility of, uh, of this project in the world uh, depends on um, how we react from a cultural point of view, not from a mechanical point of view. And, and we've lost... A lot in our media cultures. Um, we've become sort of somewhat almost in a Stockholm syndrome relationship mm-hmm. with technology. Mm-hmm. And I think what we need to get back is um, real conversations at the level of culture, not at the level of you know, the speed of consumption. Right. And the it's not the, the technology,
0: a- right? It's not the technology not. that went wrong. That comes through in your book again and again. It's not the technology, it's the, the, the approach. To journalism. Now, I want to finish off on one final note, sort of uh, sort of uh, connecting this to other things. I, you know, I'm reading a book right now, Charles Montgomery. Um, he 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 writes all. Uh, he's a journalist. He writes all about um, the the happy city movement. And he, what he talks about is you know that that cities where people are thrown together in close proximity, sharing ideas. Are better for people's mental health, and he, you know, I'm working through a chapter right now where he talks about the exurbs and and sprawl, where you can surround yourself with like-minded people, um, in like-looking houses, and it, it it's leading basically to, you know, the people eating their own, and and it leads to terrible things where families are destroyed, culture is destroyed, everything is destroyed, and I see a shocking parallel with echo chambers. Um, you know if we 're to survive as far as journalism goes, uh, we have to throw ourselves into the heart of the public square in the middle of the city and share ideas that with people that we might not like, uh, but be grown ups about it, not c n n or Fox, as opposed to throwing ourselves out into the suburbs into the sprawl and surrounding ourselves with like minded people who don 't have an original thing to tell us. That'll just kill us inside. And I think maybe what we're going to see is that people just that that part of their soul just dies off that they that they all want to hear the same thing all the time. And maybe they're going to start to crave to hear a bit of difference in contrary or po- contrarian points of view because it just makes life more interesting. Do you see that happening?
1: Absolutely. So actually, I ran into Charles Montgomery yesterday. I was walking to work and he was riding his bike and he got off his bike. and We walked and talked for a while Mm -hmm. Um, and we sort of acted like neighbors, which is what people do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, his work is terrific. And it actually echoes a bit, I think, some of the work of Robert Putnam. You may remember Mm -hmm. his work, um, Bowling Alone, that uh, really notable book he wrote probably 20 or 30 years ago now about the fact that, you know, Americans used to get together at the bowling alley on a Thursday or Friday night, and that's where a lot of social discourse took place, and now they sit at home watching TV um, and and, and are not engaged. The Vancouver Foundation has done some um, interesting work on engagement and the fact that people feel alienated in this city, um, and I think that's happening all around the world. And so we do need ways in which we can open up um, our communities to much more um, civic engagement. And, and this can happen in large ways, but it can also happen in very, very small ways. And um, you, we've talked about New York Times and The Guardian and Breitbart and uh, you know the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and all that sort of stuff. So these are large publications uh, or getting smaller <laughs> in mm-hmm. some cases all the time. Um, but you know, there's also a role for journalism and your know, intelligent media at a very granular level in civic society. They're um, helping to connect people, helping to actually create a kind of a, uh, a an ecosystem of understanding and empathy and shared purpose, uh, which can happen at a very localized level. Uh, and I think is a, a, an absolute public service that journalism can produce. Um, Steven Johnson has written extensively in uh, some of his work about um, you know, the power of media and of sort of local storytelling to just help people solve problems, whether it's a pothole in the corner or something going on down in the shops and everything else. Um, so we can think of journalism as this grand project with this sort of clash of ideals at the sort of presidential level and everything else, but also I think um Journalism is just another form and can be a powerful form of having people kind of come out of themselves, um, contribute in small uh, but important ways, and actually connect with their fellow human beings at a personal level. I mean, if we get driven out to the margins, into silos uh, more and more, as um, Mm -hmm. seems to be the way, you know, that has incredible consequences for, frankly, the psychology of our communities. Uh, it, um, it, our, mental, our own mental health. Uh, completely. It is completely there, there's absolutely a relationship between what we listen to and how we then communicate or what we listen to and how we then don't communicate has enormous implications for public health. Uh, public mental health uh, and it has enormous implications for whether or not we live in a safe and plural and democratic and diverse society or whether we just um, are all locked up afraid to go outside Uh, and that's that's what we confront in this society right now
0: thank you so much for sharing your insights thank you for having me mark it's been tremendous to talk to you ian gill author of no news is bad news pick it up now on Amazon. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you want to get a hold of me, drop me an email at mark, M-A-R-C at markstoiber.com.
1: M-A-R-C-S-T-O-I-B-E-R.com. Have a good one.